0: Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take common life in our society is in decline. The loss of meaningful work and the breakdown of the family leave us anxious and alone. And according to studies, half of all Americans report daily feelings of loneliness. Public discourse is polarized. Ethnic minorities face systemic injustices and the ever-present fear of violence and deportation. Economic inequalities are widening and the list continues. There is real uncertainty and fear among American Christians about what the future of the church in America will look like, says Jake Midor, my guest. He's the author of In Search of the Common Good, Christian Fidelity in a Fractured World. In his new book, Midor diagnoses our society's decline as the failure of a particular story we've told about ourselves, the story of modern liberalism. He shows us how that story has led to our collective loss of meaning, wonder, and good work, and then recovers each of these by grounding them in a different story, a story rooted in the deep tradition of the Christian faith. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Jake Midor. Jake, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: You have written a new book in search of the common good, Christian Fidelity in a Fractured World. You're part of a group of writers, thinkers in Christian sort of public life that sense that there's kind of something off in in, in where the church is right now as it exists in, yeah. in American culture. and And you connect that also to the sense that there's an American decline story as well. But it's interesting, right? You kind of got sort of unsettled at the time where you're on one hand reading some kind of conservative stuff like mm-hmm. evangelical kind of reform stuff that's diagnosing the problem. And on the other hand, you're reading like Brian McLaren and emergent stuff. So you mm-hmm. were sort of drinking from a lot of streams here. There were a lot of tributaries that kind of contributed to your own intellectual development. How how did that sort itself out for you? That's a good question.
1: Um, yeah. So the context for that is I grew up in a fundamentalist church that – would kind of be in the MacArthurite orbit, but they would actually regard MacArthur as being too liberal.
0: And for, for so listeners that, who aren't like in this world, we're yeah, not talking sorry. like Douglas MacArthur. Right, right, John I, MacArthur. Yeah, yeah. John, John MacArthur, who's a sort of big conservative pastor from California. And, and the yeah. guy, I think people love him because of his certainty on everything. The guy has like certainty on every position. It no, ah, could be this, it could be this. If he's got an opinion, it's a certain one.
1: Yeah. Well, the the best line I had from a friend is he gave a lecture probably 10 years ago when I was still kind of in that world where he said, quote, contextualization is a curse and contextualization is just talking about the way we try to talk about Christianity to make it accessible to people so that they can actually follow what we're saying. And I told a friend this and my friend looked at me and he said, did he say this into a microphone while wearing a suit? And I said, yes, he did. And he's like, he's not very smart, is he? <laughs> <I was> like,
0: <laughs> and you point out in your book that he belongs to a movement that's, if anything, over contextualized, right? You say that, that mm-hmm. oh, yeah, has sort of been trying to bring in members and uncritically accommodate itself to, mm-hmm. these, to Western suburbanite kind right, of norm. Right. So he's it's funny because he probably isn't aware Of the degree to which he's, 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 if anything, maybe a model of too much contextualization. Right.
1: I mean, it's kind of like when somebody says they don't believe in liturgy or they don't have a liturgy at their church. Well, you do. You're just not aware about it Um, because liturgy is just the way you organize your church service. But yeah, so I was coming out of that and was pretty jaded, disillusioned. Um, This was in 2005 is when I left. So Velvet Elvis had just come out not that long before um, the New Kind of Christian Trilogy that McLaren wrote was out, but New Kind of Christianity wasn't yet. I think Generous Orthodoxy came out right in the middle of all that. Um, So I was reading those guys, and then I was also reading and thinking a lot about um, Reformed folks, because it seemed like they were... I could discern that the emergent folks were going in a different direction theologically than what I had grown up with. And I could tell that the reformed folks in some ways would have been less objectionable to the people I grew up with while still being like beyond the pale for various reasons. Um, And so I was curious how to work through that. Part
0: of the evangelical story. I think that a lot of people, if they're outside that tribe might not understand. I mean, like I find in my, among my Jewish friends, Mm, sure. There's not much of a tie necessarily between belonging and believing or believing and belonging. You know, mm, you, you mm-hmm. can believe all sorts of things and you're still one of the tribe. In evangelicalism, oftentimes, they're two are almost fused, so that if you sort of say you're they reading the yeah. wrong you, you, like, you can sort of say you're in certain churches, you're, you're reading the wrong books, you go on the prayer list, and <laughs> not, the good, not the kind right. you want to be on. Right, right, right. right.
1: Yes. Um, I think that relates to a certain fearfulness that a lot of evangelicals have um, which is reflected in a lot of the similar books kind of in the same ballpark as what I was trying to do in mine. Um, I remember in high school. So while I was reading all these guys, I was also just reading outside of Christian authors as well. And so I was reading like French existentialists who still have a weird influence on me in certain ways. Um, and somebody at church was not happy that I was reading them and I was Annoyed? Did you
0: you volunteer it? Where you're like, "Hey," they would see me reading it at church. Like I, I
1: was the awkward, introverted kid who would carry a book with me everywhere. You bring
0: your Sartre, you know, with your with your life application study Bible. Like, (laughs) were, were you a masochist? You're like, please abuse me, or
1: I don't know. I don't know. I think I just didn't. I was so angry, I didn't care, and I just wanted to read read stuff. So I was reading. That and getting kind of scolded over it. And finally, I was just like, so like, is there a certain point I'm going to get to like page 73 of the stranger and Christianity is going to stop being true? Like, is is that what you're afraid of? Because that's a pretty brittle faith, actually. And so I was working through all those things. And then I ended up spending two summers at the Rochester, Minnesota branch of Liberty Fellowship um, and washed up. in in the midst of all that between stints at LaBrie. Um, or no, it would have been just after my second stint at LaBrie. I came back to Lincoln and I had been pointed toward the PCA by a worker at LaBrie. And that's Presbyterian church in America. It's Tim Keller's denomination. He's probably the most famous member, um, or pastor in our church. And so I started going to this church called grace chapel here in Lincoln and the people were incredibly generous and patient, and they weren't afraid of questions. And I spent a lot of time just talking through stuff with the pastor there, um, a guy named Mike Shu, who's now up in Vancouver. And then I also got hooked into um, Reformed University Fellowship, which was a campus ministry, and had very similar conversations with the campus pastor there and just kind of over several years worked through things to where I felt like, yeah, I'm happy here in the PCA and broadly in agreement with them on a lot of these questions. And I think this is my home. Um, it's not something that I want to hold in a schismatic or divisive way, certainly. And I've got lots of friends in many different kinds of churches but for me, the PCA has kind of become home after a lot of years of just wrestling through things.
0: This is where it already countercultural, right? Because in that book American Grace, the author, the great big sociological book about mm-hmm. it, they know that all Americans, even Roman Catholics, are congregationalists, right? Most people don't think that much about mm-hmm. what kind of Christians they tribe with. But you, this mm-hmm. seems like an intentional and, and as part of it, it seems like you found a tradition that did justice to a kind of conservative evangelicalism that you came up with in, but was much more intellectually robust, curious. You had more room to sort of be you, and yet was, also retain some of the best of the stuff that you wanted to hold on to from yeah, yeah. youth.
1: It it was two things. So there was the intellectual side that was a big deal. I remember one time, um, so Velvet Elvis. There's the kind of infamous passage where bell posits what would happen if we woke up tomorrow and found that Jesus had a biological father and the virgin birth wasn't true. And I remember reading that and being like, that's a good question. And I could never in a million years have asked anyone at the church I grew up in, save maybe my parents, like save my parents, a question like that. Cause they would have spazzed out and never answered it, but judged me. Like, it just wouldn't have gone well. Um, But I could sit down with my pastor, Mike, and say, okay, Mike, do I need to believe in the virgin birth? And Mike would say, yes, you should believe in the virgin birth. And then I can say, why? And an hour and a half later, we've had a really good conversation about how we understand the Bible, about how we think about sin, about how we understand Christ. And that was something that I really needed. The other thing that was really important um, so in the midst of all of that, I came across this name while I was reading, um, a book by D.A. Carson, um, Tim Keller, and I had never heard of Tim Keller. This was like 05. So it was before he had done most of his books. And I picked up his book on mercy ministry, um, called it the Jericho Road. Cause a big thing that bothered me. I remember one time, the church I grew up in, we had a Bible study and we were doing James and we got to the verse at the end of James one, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of the father caring for the widows and orphans. And the group leaders scan on that. He just very briefly went over and he said, well, we don't have any widows or orphans in our church, which wasn't true anyway. So that doesn't really apply to us today. And that was all he said about it. And I was just like, if I played that game with any verse in the book of Romans, you would have me out on the curb in three seconds. But because it's a verse that requires that we actually see poor people, we actually give up some of our privilege, some of our wealth, some of our time to love them. And we won't talk about that. And it made me so angry. Um, and I remember reading Keller's book. Wait,
0: wait, what did you say? I mean, did you talk to the... Um, did I already...
1: You widely disliked and kind of viewed as a bit of a brat, I think. And I had already had like a 15 minute argument with them over something else earlier in the study. So it was just, I was not even going (laughs) to bother. I felt convicted afterwards though, because I realized I wasn't doing that. And so um, later that week I went down to the city mission and started volunteering there with their childcare group, which was, I, got, I did that for two or three years um, before I started college um, and then just got too busy with college and jobs. But it was an amazing time, and I loved getting to do that. And that was just not something we encouraged at all at church. But then I was reading Keller, and Keller was presenting attentiveness to the poor, care for those on the margins, as this essential part of Christian fidelity. Um, if you're failing here you're just failing to uphold the standards of scripture in terms of how you um, relate to your neighbor and it was one of those things there's been several times in my life where I'll read something and at first it sounds really radical and crazy because i have never seen it phrased that way and then I start kind of like going back through because the author will show their work and just explain how they get there and I'm like all he's doing is reading the Bible <laughs> So, OK, this is what we're doing. Um, and so that was the the intellectual side. And then also the um, attentiveness to the poor, which was also something I saw reflected at um, Grace. We had a partnership. So this was not your typical like white suburbanites go to like majority world country and try to fix everything in two weeks. We actually had a partnership with a Haitian church, a Haitian pastor. Um, to like, we would kind of let him set the agenda. Like we were like, we want to be available and helpful to you guys. Cause we're friends. Um, we want you to tell us what to do and what not to do. And so that was the way we approached that relationship. And then that pastor was actually the guy who preached the Sunday I got baptized. Um, and that would have just been unimaginable at, in the world I grew up in, but at grace it was normal. And so that was a really, it was the combination of the community and the genuine curiosity about theology and the attentiveness to those on the margins um, that I think all kind of came together for me and helped me kind of lay down roots.
0: You, you have a phrase in the book, you're quoting Steve Garber, who wrote a great mm-hmm. book called The Fabric of Faithful, Faithfulness. And- mm mm-hmm. You say that he says one of the greatest questions any of us will face is whether we can know the world and still love it. And it seems to me that oftentimes in religious circles, you find people who have kind of an understanding of the human condition and anthropology that takes seriously sin and the tragic nature of the human condition, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but and and that reality of that, and that leads to them not really loving the world. And then you have people that love the world, (laughs) but can't really Mm -hmm. take... The tragic right. nature of it seriously, and it seems like what you're trying to do is hold those intentions mm-hmm. together that look this this mm-hmm. story if you, if you if you need to hold the tragic side, but also that, that, that this place is good and, and if you if you lose mm-hmm. sight of either you, you've lost the whole thing
1: right yeah, so one of the things that was pivotal for me at Grace, I remember a sermon where Mike was talking about divine judgment and justice. And this is a topic that can be spoken of in extremely unhelpful and inappropriate ways that aren't even biblical. Um, But the way Mike talked about it is he said, you know, we can have ideas in the West as relatively well-off Americans that don't reckon with the evil of the world seriously. And he had this quote from Miroslav Wolf, the Yale theologian, who I think he's from Croatia originally. And it's from Exclusion and Embrace. And I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the quote in front of me. But it was something to the effect of it, it takes the quiet of a Western suburban home to find the idea of a God without wrath.
0: Comforting. Yeah, the, the non, I think it's the non judgmental God is the creation yeah. of the American suburb or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I remember reading it. I was like, this is great. Yeah. That book, yeah. by the way, Exclusion and Embrace is unbelievably yeah. helpful.
1: Uh, yeah. And so that was a really big thing for me. Um, that I think pulled me back from um, going down a universalist road or something like that was just reckoning with that quote and kind of teasing out what it, at least for me, as I was thinking about it would mean to go that route theologically. Um, But then at the same time, God calls creation good many times in the creation account. And when you read the account in revelation at the end of all things there's tons of echoes of what's going on in the genesis text um and there's not this kind of otherworldly pie in the sky thing that is how a lot of american christians think about the eschaton um the world to come like the idea in revelation seems to be that it's here in this world and god through his judgment and his grace and his mercy he purifies this world and his city descends to here and so i think when you remember that or i mean even think about like it's impossible to make sense of a lot of biblical stories if this world is just all bad and there's nothing good in it and we just need to get rescued out of it i mean look at the sermon on the mount How on earth can you understand the Sermon on the Mount if you don't understand that there is a sense in which creation is still very good?
0: I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? to be a patron through Patreon of this which I think is an art form you're enjoying and continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you David Babico Ken Skillman Ellis Brazil David Zoll Sari Graham Peter Steigerwald Jennifer Spate Ben DeHart Joel Wentz Jordan Demice Samantha Conauer Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlan, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stahlsworth, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenegg. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. In her most recent book, the Lutheran pastor and author Nadia Boltz Weber says she's writing about issues of human sexuality. She says that she's okay with porn as long as it's ethically sourced. And I'm left wondering, what could you watch ethically sourced porn on, right? Because every device we have is built on all sorts of exploitation economically and all sorts of injustices throughout the world. So this is, I mean, you're not a anti-modern by any means, right? But you you do talk a lot about unintended consequences in your book and and how modernity and this culture of disenchantment and our economy tend to kind of run amok and out of control at
1: times. But there's been a spike in suicides amongst American farmers and you can see identical trends in Western Europe and in South Asia um, where we have overturned this traditional way of life very quickly with no understanding of the social ramifications because we were only focused on the bottom line. And now there's all these people that have been kind of orphaned in a sense, um, because they've been displaced. And so there was a a talk I heard an Indian journalist give um, several years ago at a Land Institute event in Kansas, where he was talking about the way that Indian farmers have been exploited by big businesses. Because they'll come in and they'll tell them, oh, if you plant this this commodity crop, you'll make tons and tons of money, and you'll be able to grow your operation, and you can stay in farming, and yada, yada, yada. And then they sell them all this special equipment, and they sell them the seed, and they sell them all these different things. And then for two years, that crop is a big m- moneymaker for them. And then demand drops. And suddenly they've transformed their farm. They've taken on enormous amounts of debt so they can grow a crop that nobody wants. And it's been devastating for the social life of South South Asia. And the big businesses don't really care because they made their sale. And so I think the thing that we have to reckon with when we are dealing with this problem of like, sure we've generated large amounts of large amounts of wealth and that has had a good effect on quality of life in many many ways um the relative gdp of a nation is not the only measure of social health and if you are coming to if you come by that spike in gdp through things that leave tons and tons of people behind i don't you have to reckon with that somehow. And I don't know that a lot of us want to do that. Um, Thankfully, I'm seeing even some conservatives starting to do it. There's a um, policy wonk named Orrin Cass who has this book called the once in future worker. um, That's trying to articulate what a worker centered, worker centered conservative movement would look like. It's an interesting book, interesting thought experiment. And he just straight up says, if you think GDP is the primary measure of social health, you're a fool. Um, but I think that's the thing that we're wrestling with right now is we've kind of unleashed this monster and it's done a lot of good things, but it's all come at a cost and we haven't been attentive to the cost.
0: Most people who are writing about the decline of American culture from a religious perspective are not looking to go back. They don't think you could just recreate (laughs) the Middle Ages or something. Right. But there's also sometimes this hostility to Liberal democracy and and, you know and Enlightenment liberalism in general, and I mean you could in some ways, right? Some of the stuff that you know you tell you have a great summary of existentialism in the book, and sort of you know where existence precedes essence—the idea that look, you know, in the modern world, you know, we it's kind of a choose your own adventure, you know, you're you're making the story up as you go along, right? Like, I mean, The Handmaid's Tale takes that problem out, right? I mean, like we can imagine lots of uh, sort of you know post liberal futures <laughs> where you could take out liberalism and mm-hmm. there'd still be a lot of alienation right i mean they, they, mm-hmm. they, 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 there's some, i mean there is something good in in free in in certain kinds of freedoms right in dignity and mm-hmm. human rights i mean it 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 these it, it it's a challenge of how do you not throw out the baby with the bathwater kind of thing right
1: yeah so I think the thing that is I'm actually trying to work on something that I want to post at Miro about this. Um, The way that we've approached the work of politics in the U.S. traditionally is we're going to say that basically all the magistrate does is create a neutral framework in which private citizens can form communities to work, like live their lives within this kind of neutral setting, and that's the only thing the magistrate does or the government does. Um, magistrate is kind of the older term you'll find in pre-modern discussions. Um, the problem with this is that politics doesn't actually work that way. Um, the political processes will direct society towards certain goods and certain ends. They aren't actually neutral. And if they try to be neutral, they're just going to create a vacuum that big business is more than happy to fill.
0: Um, Yeah. People don't vote neutral. I mean, people vote for emotional and psychological reasons, like something that described that rationally will appeal to zero voters.
1: Right. Right. And so, we don't actually have a neutral political framework. We just like to tell ourselves we do. Um, We have a political framework that has worked extremely well for a small slice of the population and is increasingly leaving the rest behind. And so what I would say we need to do is we just need to be honest about the fact that politics is going to be ordered toward producing a certain kind of society and then we need to talk about what kind of society that should be. And that's scary because suddenly you're playing with live ammo. Um, this is why, and you, you can debate the relative good or bad faith of these critics, but this is why when the left wants to push more like kind of far left sounding ideas. Some conservatives start to spaz because like, this is actually the thing that I think is interesting with the young left movement amongst the Democrats is I don't think they're actually interested in neutrality. I think they're interested in a very fixed political ideal that they want to advance us toward. Um, And I think there's an honesty in that, that I really admire.
0: Yeah. yeah, I I, I recently had David French on the podcast and we were talking (laughs) about how the new Alliance is not left, right. It's you have an illiberal, Populism yeah. on the left and right, right, mm-hmm. and then you have a kind of classical, more traditional liberals on the right and the right center and left center. And so it's interesting when you get to these populist extremes. You're right; people are very honest about the fact mm-hmm. on the populist right and the populist left that this classic liberal attempt at some sort of neutrality or some sort of a, a distance or or, or right. some sort of guard guardrail. No, that's not desirable anymore.
1: <laughs> right? No, I, I appreciate the ways that like Jacobin and Baffler and media and kind of like AOC and Telaide and like, I appreciate what they're doing in the debate because I think it's exposing the fact that this neutrality isn't actually neutral. It works for somebody and we're just trying to be explicit about who it works for instead of letting that kind of just be this awkward thing that no one talks about. Um, but it, it also is why like even just last week, you have this national conservative conservatism conference in d c um, where there's like some genuinely scary folks there pushing these ideas that I don't want to be associated with happening alongside other folks that are trying to wrestle with problems in better ways, I think um but it's just baked into once you say the government should be trying to should be explicit about the kind of society we should be explicit about what kind of society we want and we shouldn't be shy about government being part of building that society. Um, Neutrality feels safer. And so moving away from that is scary, but I don't know that we have a choice because I don't think we actually have neutrality. We just have a system where power levers are hidden and obscured such that the people who have access to them have radical amounts of power that they often use in really destructive ways. And I would like us to just be more explicit about these things and say like, no, we want to create a society that does X and We're going to use government to help advance that. We want to create a society that is actually friendly to families. And so we're going to have paid leave. We're going to maybe increase the tax credit for families. Um, There's any number of kind of policy levers you could pull. I think we should just be explicit about that and say that's what kind of society we want to create. And so we're going to take these steps to do it.
0: Yeah. What's interesting to me, in this kind of discussion around American cultural decline in the church. You have people like Rod Dreher and the Benedict Option, the mm-hmm. kind of sectarians who kind of argue for life in more of a Christian colony and, and mm-hmm. don't worry about the wider good, you know, keep the church alive, you know, make the church mm-hmm. great again, even if it's smaller again. And then you have people that are much more interested in a kind of transformational approach mm-hmm. to the culture systemically. And and you kind of Seem to chart away. Where you're saying, look, we want to care about the public good, mm-hmm. but oftentimes it's sort of in the in in the wonder of the ordinary that we'll actually have the best influence. When we actually have people that understand worship and work and human connection, mm-hmm. and oftentimes the most radical politics we'll have are so. It's it's sort of like the sense of taking the Christian life seriously, like Rod Dreher, without abandoning a kind of love for and care for the world in which we live. I mean, it sounds like you're trying to chart a way that, 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 that has the best of some of all of that stuff.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Cause I think a lot of what Rod is doing um, and I'm, he's a good friend and has been very generous to Miro. I'm very grateful for him. A lot of what he's doing is, basically wrestling with c- categories of ecclesiology and missiology. Um, how do we organize Christian communities and how do we relate to the non Christian world around us? Um, and you can deal with those questions and still also do other questions, like deal with other questions around political theory, political society. Um, so my argument and, um, there's an Anabaptist group that has been very helpful to me, and it's called the Bruderhof. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been to their Fox Hill community in upstate New York a couple times, and it's just a remarkable place. Um, But one of the things that one of their pastors has said is, the reason we're able to do what we can do in terms of outreach, and they actually do a lot, um a lot of people don't realize how much a community like that actually can do in terms of outreach as he said we're able to do those things because the life of our community is strong um and as i've thought about it i think what is a factor that any of us think about when we want to do something generous or helpful to neighbor um we're always encountering this question of limited resources and scarcity. So I would really love to do this thing to help my neighbor, but I'm just really busy or my budget is really tight. Um, It's hard to do. I don't even like the word outreach because it sounds churchy, but it's the easiest word. I think it's hard to do, or maybe just love neighbor. Um, Those things are harder to do when your own life, your own community is in a position of weakness and vulnerability because all of your energy goes to trying to keep like everything functioning at a tolerable level in your world. But when you are in a firmer place, you are better able to reach out to others. There's something I've heard a Catholic monk say, where he said, you know, part of the reason that we're able to have this retreat center that we host for people that we're able to have this business that we do, that we're able to open our doors to the community around us as much as we do, is because we have a way of life that's defined and stable. And on the one hand, that does put limits on exactly what we can do, because if something's going to disrupt our liturgical practices in a dramatic way, we probably can't do it. On the other hand, because those practices are strong, it actually gives us the mental and emotional resources we need to be able to love neighbor more effectively. Um, so it's about having a strong Christian community precisely so that your outreach can be freer and more liberal um, because you are better able to take on needs. Um, you this are more is, available.
0: The, air, the airline instructions, right? If there's a put your own mask mm-hmm, on, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're trying to save your kid. Or your right, life. Right. You better be breathing.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Yes. I think that's right.
0: You had this phrase in the beginning of the book where you talk about, you realize only things that die can be resurrected. And, and, and you have this sort of hopeful but not Pollyannish optimistic tone in the book. I mean, you're very hopeful. I, I, there's a theologian, Tomas Halik, a Czech Catholic okay. priest. Yeah, and I, I, when I was reading your book, I thought of these words. And it sounds like there's something of this in your book. Uh, he's talking about Nietzsche's God is dead uh, mm-hmm. in the case science he says, I think of this as the record of a dream, but a big dream with pr- prophetic significance for our entire tribe. And he means church and world. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I felt the message, God is dead, is only the first sentence, which must be followed by another, a second sentence, in the same way that Good Friday was an important message just from God, but it was not the final one. God mm-hmm. is dead. That sentence uttered at the, at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was not only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God, who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. Mm -hmm. And I think of that his his taking that that crises of faith, not just personal but cultural, that that, mm-hmm. and somehow, you know, being contained in God's own story of death and resurrection, and that this is not uh, necessarily a case for utter despair. That, that that these challenging times of decline can also be, as you say, you know, realizing that in only in dying can there be resurrection.
1: Yeah. Um... I want to go back and look at that. What was that theologian's name?
0: Tomas Halik. He was actually, he became a priest in an underground seminary. He knew Havel and stuff. And so he couldn't go okay. to the, he came, came up under the Iron Curtain. And now yeah, yeah. I think two Easter's ago, he baptized 30 adults at Easter. He's a Czech priest and a universal yeah. professor, but he's a, an amazing thinker.
1: Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one, one meaning of the word apocalypse is unveiling. And, you, you think about what that an unveiling is when you see a truth that wasn't there before. And once you see it, you can respond to it. When you don't see it, you can't respond to it. So I think when we don't think anything is wrong, when we're going about our day, um, not seeing the state of the church, not seeing the, loneliness around us socially you're not able to do anything about it because you don't even know that it's a problem um and this is a, a constant problem i mean this is again jesus take the speck like we don't see the speck in our own eye um that's kind of just being human but once you see it you can repent of it you can ask god's help to deal with it and you can begin to slowly start to recover and to make the changes you need to make. And that's hard. Um, And it's not something that should be undertaken alone. To begin, you should do it in humble reliance on the Holy Spirit. It's a um, phrase that we have in our membership vows in the PCA. Um, So you, you humbly rely on God and ask for his help, but you also hopefully have a community of people around you where you can say, like, this is something that I'm seeing in my life, or this is a, a wound that I'm seeing in my neighborhood that I want to do something about. Can you all help? And these things are never perfect. Um, There's a great line in um, the film, look and see it's a kind of, it's not really a biopic of Wendell Berry, the Kentucky agrarian essayist, but it's a, a profile, I guess you could say it's, it's, weird, hard to describe, but at the end, um, the filmmaker, whose name is Laura Dunn. She's interviewing Tanya Berry, Wendell's wife, and they've been married for, I think, 63 years now. And Tanya's comment was something to the effect of none of this has been perfect, but it's been right. It's been good. And I think that is something that we can aspire to in small communities is like, let's not crush ourselves under the, the burden of trying to be perfect but let's commit to being attentive to what's going on in each other's lives and to an openness to neighbor, um, to generosity that I think God will use to renew us individually and also can be used to bless the small place where God has called you and, Admit it, like, depending on your vocation, that could actually have pretty wide reaching effects. Like, I think if someone working in politics had this kind of vocation, they could do certain things that like, I could not do as a writer and, um, editor, but at bottom, the, the agenda is not revolutionary in nature. It's not, we're going to begin the world again. Um, I think that's actually, that's from Thomas Paine in Common Sense. He talks about how Americans have the chance to begin the world again. Um, I think that's a really dangerous ambition. Um, because to begin with, it often is built on not actually knowing the world that you're trying to set aside, um, quite literally in the case of America, since the only way we we began that world again is by killing indiscriminately thousands of people and enslaving many, many more. Um, so that can't, it can't be a revolutionary thing. It's a more locally based thing that is going to be slower, but I think also less likely to have the destructive wide ranging side effects that you often get with more revolutionary attempts to kind of set the world right or however you want to put it.
0: Yeah. Love is the opposite of control. Right, I mean, and and that's interesting. All those perfectionistic attempts all rely heavily on con, on control. And when you see control, you you might have to give up perfectionist dreams, but you also are opened up to really love to give it and receive it.
1: Yeah, well, and when you look at how a lot of revolutionary movements have worked, at least over the last couple hundred years, um, they often begin with a recognition that there really is something wrong. Um, No one is gonna argue that France in 1780 was a model of civic health. No one's gonna argue that Russia in 1915 was awesome. Um, There were real problems. And yet when you proceed with this very headstrong confidence that you're right about everything and if you can just kind of pull the right levers socially, you're gonna fix everything it turns violent and ugly so quickly. Um, I think that there, there should, it, it gets used in dishonest ways by many on the right, but I do think there's something to the fact that revolutions tend to actually be deeply destructive things that we should keep in mind as we're, I think coming to, we're coming to a realization that the end of history actually wasn't the end of history and there's something next. Um, I think whatever that something next is does need to have an anti-revolutionary aspect to it, because otherwise it's not going to be what we need. It may even make a lot of things worse.
0: Well, whatever is coming next, uh, Christians that care about it would do well to read your book in search of the common good. It's a a great read. And thanks for spending some time talking to me
1: about it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun.
0: Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Jake for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, In Search of the Common Good. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.